Saint Oscar Romero once said, let us not tire of preaching love. It is the force that will overcome the world. Welcome to the 58th episode of Saint Infinite's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because love is the answer to all things. A love that walks through the valley with those who are suffering, carries the hope for them, and in that way brings Christ into their lives. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, a recent NBC News story on the state of black mental health in 2020 dropped late last month, and I wanted to draw our attention to some of the takeaways. The mental health of black Americans is under strain as 2020 unravels, bringing to light racial disparities across the country. Notable black celebrities such as Michelle Obama and Gabrielle Union opened up in recent weeks about how radical strife in America has affected their own well-being. Union, who's been vocal on social issues and her own experiences, said in an interview with Women's Health that she was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Quote, the combination of a pandemic and this racial reckoning alongside being inundated with images of the brutalization of black bodies has sent my PTSD into overdrive, she said, end quote. There's just terror in my body. Add to that, black communities have been disproportionately affected by the coronavirus, according to a study from the CDC. The pre-existing conditions that put most people at a higher risk of dying from the virus, such as high blood pressure or diabetes, are more prevalent in communities of color, in part due to health disparities stemming from racial and socioeconomic status. And a Washington Post poll from June found that one in three black Americans personally knew someone who died from COVID-19, the disease caused by coronavirus. All of this and so much more is bringing about what psychologists with the APA are calling a mental health tsunami. And we have to step back and consider how the mental health field has been unable to meet the needs of those people of color who need help need support, and need mental health treatment. According to a 2018 study, only 4% of psychologists are black. And a lack of diversity in the field only furthers the stigmatization of mental health services in communities of color and a general mistrust in mental health services after a history of it being used as a tool to oppress black people. So two things. Let's pray for all our sisters and brothers of color that they may find comfort, open arms, and good quality care in the mental health world. And let's take action to do whatever we can to address the issues of racism, poverty, income inequality, and inadequate access to health care that leaves so many of those very same sisters and brothers in a constant state of stress, something that seriously impacts one's health. On to the next topic, it was widely reported that a former Trump campaign manager was recently placed on an involuntary inpatient psychiatric hold, and I thought it might be a good time to explore what this process is like and how things generally work for people who find themselves in this situation. This process varies from state to state, so I'll try to keep things as general as possible, but the situation sets up like this. An individual who is a danger to themselves, like suicidal, a danger to others, we say homicidal, or gravely disabled, which means unable to avail themselves to food, clothing, or shelter because of a mental health issue, 
and who is unwilling to receive treatment may be placed on an involuntary hold that provides at the very least an assessment of their safety and overall mental health situation in the moment uh, at a hospital or a psychiatric emergency room. It's worth noting that just having suicidal or homicidal thoughts is not enough to send someone to the hospital against their will. I want to encourage people to be able to share their thoughts with their therapists and doctors without fear of going to the hospital. It's really only when an individual has a plan and the intent and the means to carry out that plan that the situation would progress to hospitalization. So meaning wishing that you were dead and thinking about being free from all your pain and suffering by going to sleep and never waking up again would not be a means uh, to send you to the hospital against your will. That's not that kind of a situation. However, feeling that way uh, and saying that you've you know used Google to search and find out exactly how many Tylenol it would take to kill yourself and having access to that exact amount of Tylenol with the uh, intent to carry it out right when you get home would most likely lead to you needing to be evaluated and treated in the inpatient setting. The important thing to remember, in my opinion, is that being placed on a hold serves the purpose of keeping us safe. It isn't like we're going to get this revolutionary treatment in the hospital that takes our depression away, but rather it's meant to keep us alive, give us some treatment that might help us to want to continue staying alive, and then help us to re-engage in our longer-term treatment once we get released from the hospital. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request. And today I'm here to share a little bit about Servant of God, Dorothy Day. In 1997, in New York City, Dorothy was the third of five children. Her dad worked as a journalist. The family moved to California when Dorothy was just six years old. They were actually there for the great San Francisco earthquake, which inspired her future life of charity. And they later lived in Chicago. Dorothy got into the University of Illinois and went there for two years before finding herself more happy to be involved in the Greenwich Village crowd, where she started her days as a journalist with a handful of radical newspapers. From Biography.com, we learn... In her personal life, Day experienced some turmoil. She was involved with writer Lionel Moyes for a time, and after Day became pregnant, she gave in to Moyes' insistence that she have an abortion. But the relationship still didn't last. Back to me. This was actually the precipitating event for a suicide attempt in which Dorothy was saved by Sue Jenkins or perhaps another neighbor named Weavy Willie, who smelled gas, entered Dorothy's apartment, and pulled her out of the apartment to safety. Back to bio.com. She eventually met Forrester Batterham. While the couple never married, they welcomed a daughter named Tamar Teresa, and Day had the child baptized at a Catholic church, a decision that started her on the path to her spiritual awakening. The rest is well known. She started the Catholic Worker with Peter Morin and went on to become one of the greatest modern examples of what it means to live the gospel with a radical love for Christ in the poor. If you're post-abortive or someone who struggles with suicidal ideation or someone who has survived suicide, please know that you have a friend in Dorothy Day. Read her work, ask her for her prayers, and find peace and comfort in knowing that one of God's incredible saints knows your pain. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. God, our creator, your servant, Dorothy Day, exemplified the Catholic faith by her conversion, life of prayer, and voluntary poverty, works of mercy, and witness to the justice and peace of the gospel. May her life inspire people to turn to Christ 
as their savior and guide, to see his face in the world's poor, and to raise their voices for the justice of God's kingdom. We pray that you grant the favors we ask through her intercession so that her goodness and holiness may be more widely recognized, and one day the church may proclaim her saint. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Anonymous gets us going as a therapist. How do you deal with someone sharing thoughts or behaviors that are supposedly normal, but are not necessarily good or virtuous? Does that make sense? I guess my question is, how do you as a therapist handle that without pushing your Catholic faith on the client? The reason I ask is having discussed some things with my therapist, he was trying to reassure me that my thoughts were normal, but I was saying yes, but that doesn't make them good. I've had my therapist and others comment that I'm very hard on myself, but it's such a slippery slope to sin otherwise. Let's get started by joining in prayer for Anonymous for the peace of Christ to come into their heart this very day. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thank you so much for sending this in, Anonymous. It's a great question and one that I grapple with on an almost daily basis. At the end of every episode of this podcast, I encourage everyone to go easy on yourselves. And I really think that while it's extremely difficult, it's one of the most important things we can do for our mental health. So to directly answer your question, the thoughts that jump into our heads without our consent or engagement are not good or bad in the sense that we need to assign a value to them or add them up at the end of the day to see if we're more virtuous or more sinful. As an example, I might be driving along the freeway home and think, maybe I should just crash my car into the guardrail. It just comes into my my head. I don't really know why, but then I shrug it off, let it pass through, and move on. This sounds bad, but in reality, it's just normal. We all have thoughts that pop into our head that have content that isn't in line with who we are as a person. Thoughts about suicide, violence, sexual acts, aggression, anger, all kinds of different things. And these thoughts don't make us good or bad. They're totally normal, a part of the human condition. Now, behaviors are a little different. If we have the ability to engage our will and our intellect, our behaviors do carry the weight of good versus bad, sin versus virtue. However, those of us with mental health conditions or symptoms, uh, we may not always have the ability to engage our will or intellect at all times. One example that comes to mind is the unhealthy coping skill of self-harm. We might feel overwhelming anxiety, or we may be depressed to the point of feeling nothing at all, and we engage in self-harm as a means of coping with those symptoms. Our culpability for those behaviors would be reduced because they're a result of our symptoms, and if we weren't experiencing these symptoms, we wouldn't choose to engage in these behaviors. So as a therapist, I use this framework and it becomes extremely important for me. Individuals who engage in behaviors that I might see as bad are typically engaging in them because of their mental health experience and wouldn't engage in these bad behaviors uh, bad behaviors if uh, things were at peace for them. In addition to that, as a therapist who might help an individual judge their own thoughts and behaviors for themselves, I'm more looking at the utility of the thoughts and behaviors like, okay, so you're engaging in this behavior, any behavior really, not even just ones that some of us might think are abnormal. What is it doing for you? Is it helping you with your emotional health or hurting you? And then we decide a course of action based on that criteria. I hope that helps. 
Katie is up next. Between the pandemic, the upcoming presidential election, and the sin of racism the church seems to be attempting to acknowledge, I'm exhausted. I find myself going down rabbit holes of social media comment sections, so I delete apps and take social media fast, but then eventually come back. How do I develop a better relationship with social media usage and social media discourse? Katie has asked the question all of us grapple with. So let's start by praying for Katie and all of us as we try to figure out a way um, to approach media in the best manner possible, the best way to stay healthy in the midst of all the content that pushes us in the other direction. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. Such a great question, Katie. For me, I have to constantly work on trusting myself. Like if I blocked or muted or decided to avoid a certain account or news story, the future me has to trust that the me of the past was making the best decision for my health and not click through to read those things that take away my joy. It's a daily struggle, like really a daily struggle. We're <laughs> we're gonna get some advice from MIT to help us put this into more practical terms. So here we go. Support a healthy online community. Before you comment, let your Words pass through three gates. At the first gate, ask yourself, is it true? At the second gate, ask, is it necessary? And at the third gate, ask, is it kind? Number two, live in the moment. Photos and videos have their places, but awareness of the present moment is crucial to your connections and experiences. Number three, link instead of compare. Comparing yourself to other people can make you unhappy in the long run, whereas making genuine connections with others can enhance your overall well-being. If you're on social media for a few minutes, mindfully ask yourself, am I comparing or linking? Take a moment to do something that links uh, that links you. Reach out to an old friend, an elder relative, and send them something to brighten their day. Number four, follow people and things that bring you joy. So important. A lot of social media content is highly curated and may represent lifestyles or attitudes that don't actually exist. To account for this, consider limiting the number of people you follow on social media. This could mean only following those who are close to you, make you feel good, and, and will be there when you need them, right? Number five, keep things in real life. MIT said IRL, but I didn't want to be a dork. If social media is causing you any stress, consider prioritizing time with friends and family over time spent on social media. Six, start your day intentionally. As easy as it is to pick up your phone and start scrolling from your bed, it may not be the healthiest way to begin as you cannot control what you're going to see. That's such a crucial crucial thing to think about. Seeing something negative could potentially contribute uh, negative subconscious thoughts that put us at risk for unhealthy patterns. So try starting your day with meditation, prayer, stretching, or positive affirmations instead. Number seven, take a break and support others in doing so. If a friend is struggling with social media uh, overuse and wants to take a break from it or, or use blocking apps, support them and don't make fun of them. Join in and, break with, and, and be on a break with them if possible. And number nine, don't struggle alone. If you're experiencing anxiety, depression, attention problems, or any other deeper issues related to social media overuse, make an appointment to talk with someone who can help you feel better again. Thanks again for the question. Anna wraps us up. I know you've discussed having, um, if you're having troubles mentally to seek professional help, but I keep coming across the idea in Catholic Facebook groups I'm in that parish priests have the ability to act as therapists. I think this is a damaging idea because I know priests are often not equipped with the skill, the skill set to properly help people with various mental illnesses. 
I've heard some people say there are a few psychology classes offered at some seminaries, but I don't know if this is true. I do think it's an interesting topic because people often lean on priests for help in all aspects of life, and I'm afraid it's so much pressure on our priests who are already spread so thin. Anna, thank you so much for bringing this question up, and let's all start by praying for everyone who needs mental health care but faces stigma from the Catholic community, for all of us that we might rip out mental health stigma from our church and our world, and for our priests that they may be properly prepared to help those suffering when they come to the parish and don't know where to go. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen. It's so disheartening to hear mental health stigma is alive and well on Catholic Facebook. (laughs) You are correct to point out that telling people to avoid therapists and simply go to their priests is a damaging idea. And I can only hope that people who hear this and take this advice met with priests who encouraged them to seek out therapy when they needed it and to really take the steps to find mental and emotional health in addition to their spiritual health. I've never been to seminary, but I reached out to a priest friend of mine uh, to get some feedback, and here's what he had to share. Keeping in mind, uh, everyone's seminary experiences is different, and all the seminaries are unique. He mentioned, quote, it's a bit easier to do psych classes in your time as an undergrad. Major seminary is a bit tougher with ordination requirements, but in my seminary, we had human formation sessions to talk about these kinds of issues, and a class on pastoral counseling. We'd also talk about this in our formation groups, and I think in my case, the seminary did the best it could with what it had. So as you can see from this example, there is a focus to an extent on emotional and mental health and even pastoral counseling, but this most likely leaves most priests ill-equipped for addressing mental health and definitely ill-equipped for doing therapy for parishioners unless they've engaged in some post-ordination graduate studies, which I actually know two priests personally who have done, and that's just so cool. Priests and all parish staff, for that matter, can also get involved in mental health first aid training. You can check out the last episode for more information about that. But as Catholics, let's remember this. We wouldn't tell people to go see the parish priest for diabetes. And we likewise should probably be recommending professional help to our friends and families suffering from mental health issues. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.